going to read from John's Gospel, uh, from John uh, chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. If you want to follow in the Bibles um, in the chairs, it's on page 1073. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now. And leave your life of sin. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Three questions I want to um, ask us this morning. And I'll give you some answers along the way. Uh, First question is this. Should we even be reading this? Should we be reading this passage uh, here in church this morning? I wonder if you notice the little uh, uh, writing in italics or in brackets in uh, your Bibles just ahead of this passage. It tells us most early manuscripts omit John 7, 53 to 8, verses 1 to 11. And there are those uh, scholars, many of them actually, who say, well, actually, this, this has no place in John's Gospel. It's a, ni- it's a nice story. Uh, but we shouldn't treat it with the same uh, authority as we do of as the rest of John's Gospels. So should we even be um, reading um, this this morning? I don't know if that kind of question uh, troubles you or gives you uh, uh, pause for thought or you don't uh, think about those um, things too much. I'm sure many of us have friends and family members who, who tell us, well, you can't really believe the Bible. You can't really trust it. I mean, it's kind of interesting, and it might have some uh, good moral truths, but you can't really uh, take it seriously today. Perhaps they point to uh, what this is, inconsistencies uh, between different parts of the scriptures. Should should we even be uh, reading um, this passage this morning? I'm going to answer that. I, I think that we can, and I think that we should. Um, When I was in my 20s, I was fortunate to go to a church where uh, the Dean of King's College London also attended, a man called uh, Richard Burridge. And he's one of the foremost uh, world scholars on the Gospels, teaches about the the New Testament, but the Gospels in particular. 
And one of the things that I learned from him was just how many copies there are of those first writings of the disciples. Just to give you a, a, a comparison. Roman history. The account of Caesar's conquest of Europe and of Britain. A conquest which took place in the time before Christ. The first histories of that, the first accounts of that, uh, were written about 50 years before Jesus. And then they were copied and transcribed and copied again. Today, we have 10 copies. Around the world, there are 10 copies of uh, Caesar's history. And the earliest of those that we've got, the earliest copy that we have, was written in the 10th century, a thousand years after Julius Caesar. In contrast, how many copies of the New Testament do we have? How many fragments of the letters? How many parchments of the Gospels do we have? Well, in contrast to those 10, we have 6,000 scattered around the world in different museums, in libraries, um, in monasteries. 5,000, well, 5,800, nearly 6,000. Some complete, some partial, some in Greek, some in Hebrew. You can uh, piece them together, you can look at them, you can compare uh, different accounts. And the earliest of those, it's true, don't have this account of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. They're not there in the complete uh, script, if you like. But there are other copies of that story, and it seems that it kind of, it it was freestanding. It travelled alone, it was uh, talked about and uh, copied and uh, read out in churches, but there was no home for it in any Gospels. Around about the 3rd century, it seems that a scribe, a scholar, uh, took that story, this story we read this morning, of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, and placed it in John's Gospel. Sandwiched it in the middle. So was it written by John? Uh, Doubtful, to be honest. Is it authentic? Is it true? Does it tell the real story of a real encounter with Jesus and the Pharisees and a woman caught in adultery? Uh, There's no reason to think um, it's not true, to doubt its authenticity. So should we be reading these? Yes, I think uh, we should. Okay, second question. What is the trap? What is the trap? Verses 5 and 6. Pharisees, they uh, bring the woman, she's been caught in adultery, they bring her before Jesus and they ask Jesus a question. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say, Jesus? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So what's the trap? What's the trap that they're setting for Jesus? Jesus is a, is a rabbi. He's, he's more than a rabbi. He's a savior of the world, but he's, he's not less than a rabbi. He's a, he's a rabbi. He's a teacher. He's schooled in the law. He knows the Torah. He knows the first five books of the Bible. 
He knows the law of Moses. He understands it uh, well. Just to give you a bit of a recap, um, a little while ago we looked at the life of Moses. In the life of Moses, we see Moses uh, rescuing, or God through Moses, rescuing the, the children of Israel, leading them into the promised land. Uh, they're slaves, they're set free by God, and suddenly they have to work out how to live together as a community. They're like children growing up. They have to make their own way in the world. All their choices, all their decisions have been made for them by their Egyptian masters, and now they have to work out how to function, how to be a country, how to be a tribe, how to be a community, how to be a family. And God gifts his people the law, rules of how to live. And the law speaks of uh, what a righteous life looks like and the blessings that flow from that, how to be a good business owner, how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to be a good child, and the blessings that flow from that. And it also talks of uh, the prohibitions, the things that you can't do as a community, the things that you can't do as as a, a family, and the penalties for breaking those prohibitions. You can't cheat in business. You can't lie to your neighbour. You can't steal their land by extending the boundary of your land arbitrarily. You can't dishonour your mother or your father. You can't be cruel to your children. And the different prohibitions, they each have different sanctions that tell you how serious uh, things are. The penalties are harsh. The greater the harm that is done, the greater the penalty. Minor infractions, mistakes... You can go to the temple and offer a sacrifice and things will be put right. The greater the prohibition, the more damage that is done to the community or to the family, uh, the harsher the penalty, the worse the curse, if you like. And the, the worst penalty of all, the hardest penalty of all, is the death penalty. Reserved for the most serious offences. For murder. For going and committing highway robbery and killing someone on the road. And for adultery as well. What is adultery? It's it's, uh, sex with somebody who's already married uh, to somebody else. The harshest penalty applied. Why? Because adultery destroys. It's the murder of a family. It's the destruction of a marriage. It's a sacred bond broken. There's no adultery without victims, whether it be wives or husbands or children. So the the highest penalty, the death penalty, um, is there. And so the Pharisees bring a woman who has been caught in the act, literally caught in the act, and they bring her before Jesus, and they say to Jesus, you know what the law is, Jesus. You know what the law demands, Are you going to follow the letter of the law? Should we stone this woman or should we let her go? And they've set a trap for Jesus. And the trap is this. He's condemned if he says yes. And he's condemned if he says no. If he says yes, follow the letter of the law, uh, stone her, then Jesus is immediately condemned. 
He's condemned in the eyes of his followers. Who is this? We don't recognize Jesus. Jesus has never said anything like this before. He's condemned in the eyes of the the tax collectors and the prostitutes who Jesus has been meeting with and eating with and talking to and uh, teaching. He's condemned in the eyes of the ordinary people. Because although the penalty was there, and the penalty was written in the law, and the penalty could be uh, pointed to in the scriptures, it was rarely, if ever, enacted. Because God wants to say, I want you to know how serious this sin is. But he wants to protect people too. And so the prohibition uh, is high. The penalty is harsh. But for that penalty penalty to be enacted, for the punishment to be uh, uh, progressed, there were certain things that had to happen. You had to have two witnesses. The word of one person that somebody was uh, uh, committing adultery, that, that wasn't enough. Not enough for just one person to say that. You needed two people. And there had to be witnesses. It couldn't just be hearsay. It couldn't be a rumor. It couldn't be something that everybody kind of knew what was going on. There had to be witnesses. They had to see with their own eyes. And it wasn't enough to see somebody going into a house or booking into a hotel, or staying at an inn together. It wasn't enough to see a, I don't know, a donkey outside, like a car parked on the road. You had to see them in the act. Now, there's a few delicate consciences here, so I won't say too more, but it wasn't enough to see them in the same room. They had to be literally in the act. And two of you had to see them in the act. And two of you had to be prepared to stand up in court and uh, testify to that. And your accounts had to match perfectly. The burden of proof was so incredibly high, it it was hardly ever invoked. And even if it was invoked... Even if it went to a court case and the the penalty could be uh, invoked, there was another option. You could stop short of uh, stoning somebody. There could be a divorce. There could be a legal separation. The the partners could go their their separate ways. And that's what happened. That's what the the courts did. One of the rabbis of uh, Jesus' time said that these, these, these court cases took place in the synagogue, like the equivalent of the church. It said that any, any synagogue which um, enacted the death penalty for adultery, that was a slaughterhouse. That was how uh, things were seen. But the law is the law. And Jesus has said, I come not to set aside the law, but to fulfill the law. So if Jesus says, yes stone her, he's condemned. What about all that stuff, Jesus, you said, about coming not to condemn the world, but to save the world? But if Jesus says, no, don't stone her, let her go, well, then he's fallen into the trap as well. Then he's condemned as well. Is he saying adultery doesn't matter? Is he saying these things don't count. He's supposed to be righteous. 
He's supposed to reveal God's will to us. He's supposed to show us what it means to be holy. Is Jesus just going to set these things aside as though they don't matter? So Jesus is caught in a trap. Condemned if he says, let her go. Condemned if he says, uh, stone her. But there's a trap within a trap. And this is why this is so uh, insidious. There's a trap within the trap. And the trap is this. Jesus could fall into the trap of just treating the woman as a kind of uh, theological problem. A kind of um, case study to be uh, debated. A conundrum to be solved. A a problem to be wrestled with. A theology to be argued over. The Pharisees are using this woman. And they're using her to trap Jesus. And Jesus could have used her too could have used her as a way to uh, give some uh, great teaching or to prove that he's more intelligent than the Pharisees or to uh, score theological points. Jesus could have fallen into the trap to use the woman as a tool, a tool in an argument. And Jesus resists that trap as well. So that's the trap. So what does Jesus do? And this is the third uh, question. What does Jesus say to people who are trapped in sin? What does Jesus say to people who are trapped in sin? There are two people who are trapped in sin in this story. There's the woman who's been caught in adultery. And there's the Pharisees and the scribes who uh, bring her before Jesus, who are trapped in self-righteousness and hypocrisy. They're trapped too. And in fact, I would say they're more trapped than the woman is. Because they are blind. And they can't see the trap that they've fallen into tells us that they approach this whole situation looking for a way to accuse Jesus. They're trapped in their own sin and it's led them to a very, very dark place. The place to plot, uh, to kill uh, an innocent man, more than that, the son of the living God. So what does Jesus uh, say to people who are trapped in sin? As I thought about this, I was reminded of the Magnificat That great song of Mary, a poem that she uh, cries out in praise to God when um, uh, she's told that she'll have a baby and the baby will be uh, Jesus and that will be uh, God's son. And in Luke's Gospel, she cries out this great song of of praise. I'll read it to you uh, from Luke chapter 1. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. What does Jesus say to people caught in their sin? 
while to those who are proud, he humbles them. To those who are seated high on their thrones, who are self-righteous, he brings them low. That's the Pharisees. That's the hypocrites. That's those who would use a vulnerable woman who in all likelihood uh, set her up in a trap and then burst in. Uh, If she's a single woman, she's probably very, very young and very vulnerable. And they use her in uh, their schemes. Or perhaps she's uh, a prostitute and has been hired to go with a man and then they burst in so that they can uh, drag her before Jesus. Either way, she's vulnerable. There would have been a man too who would have been caught in adultery. And there's no mention of him. Uh, he, just, he just walks away free. The Pharisees have no interest in justice. They have no interest in the law being really executed fairly. The whole uh, thing is about catching Jesus, of putting him down that they might be uh, lifted up. They're blinded by their hypocrisy and their self-righteousness. So what does Jesus say to people like that? He shows strength with his arm and he scatters the proud. Jesus undoes them with one word, one sentence. If you are without sin, throw the first stone. He sees into their hearts and he bursts the balloon. A spotlight shines on them and they can't bear the light. And then one by one, they slip away. I love that little note that it's the oldest ones who go first. They know exactly what they're doing and they've been exposed. Their conscience is seared and they slip away. One by one, they leave. And then when Jesus is alone, no one else around, alone with the woman, then he turns his attention to her. Back to the Magnificat. He exalts those of humble estate. He fills the hungry with good things. He shows mercy to those who fear him. Woman, he says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Go now and leave your life of sin. He speaks her words of grace, not condemnation. She's suddenly free to make a fresh start in life. He's literally saved her. He saved her from the mob. He saved her from a stoning. He saved her from judgment. He saved her from being a a tool in somebody else's argument. He set her free from all of that. And now he invites her to go and walk. Go and begin a new life. Go and start again. Leave this life of sin behind and have a fresh beginning. There's no condoning what has happened. Jesus doesn't say it's not important or it doesn't matter. He doesn't say that nobody's been hurt. He doesn't tell her that everything has been all right. There's no judgment. There's no condemnation. 
Jesus names what she's done as sin and then invites her to leave it behind and walk on in his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy. The proud he scatters. The humble he lifts up. And this is a woman who is broken, who knows sexual uh, brokenness, who knows guilt, who's fearful, who's vulnerable, and Jesus lifts her up. Lifts her up with words of grace and invites her to walk on in a new life. Should we read this this morning? Yes, we should. What's the trap? The trap for Jesus is to apply the letter of the law or to set aside the law, and he does neither. The trap is for Jesus to see a woman just as a, as a problem to be solved, not a person to be healed. He doesn't fall into that trap either. What does Jesus say to people caught in their sins? To those who are proud, he scatters them. So those who feel they have no need of uh, grace or healing, he sends them away. To so those who are broken, who are humbled, he lifts them up and invites them to walk in a new life. So what of that penalty? What of that death penalty? What of that penalty for sin that we uh, started with? Well, Jesus tells the woman to go, not because the penalty has been set aside, not because it doesn't matter, but because Jesus himself will bear it. Jesus is on a journey, he's on a journey to the cross. This is part of our Lenten readings. It's a a moment in Jesus' life we consider knowing what comes ahead. Next week we have Palm Sunday, then we have Good Friday, then we have Easter Sunday. Jesus is on the journey to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus will bear the sins of the Pharisees, of the self-righteous. He'll bear the sins of the broken, uh, uh, the sexually broken. Bear the sins of this woman. He'll bear those sins and he'll bear the penalty for those sins. He will bear the death penalty. And because he will bear her penalty, he can tell her that she may walk free. And he will bear our penalty too. He'll take on himself the sins of the whole world and your sins and my sins. And invite us all to walk free in his grace. John, who... Uh, wrote this gospel, and who we don't know if he wrote this uh, passage or not. Many people uh, think he didn't. I'm, I'm not quite so sure, but it's certainly not there in those first uh, gospels. Uh, that John did write some of the letters uh, in the Bible. Uh, we know them as John's letters to the churches. And in one of those letters, he writes this. If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just. And he will forgive us and he will cleanse us. 
In a moment, we're going to take communion together. And as we take communion, what we're doing is we're acknowledging our need of the Lord. We're saying, Lord, I need you. I need your cleansing. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I need you uh, to set me free. Jesus said he was the bread of life. Again, from the Magnificat. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. As we take communion together, let's acknowledge our need of him and trust in his grace and his forgiveness. He scatters the proud, but lifts up the humble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray uh, this morning for ourselves. We recognise that if you kept a record of our sins, none of us could stand tall. Uh, But you're gracious and you're merciful, and you invite us to uh, confess all that we are and all that we have before you. And you invite us to walk in faith with you, uh, restored and healed. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you for the gift of communion by which we remember him. And we say we are hungry. Uh, Fill us with your good things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.